Oh dear. Hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J, and in today's episode, I chat with digital nomad and longtime developer Mike Akakpo about being a digital nomad in the app development world, generating passive income, his time freelancing for Google, and living the four hour workweek lifestyle. So, with that intro out of the way, fun fact about this episode so, this was recorded on a Sunday at 2 pm. I'd gone out for a walk earlier about 11, 11.30, something like that, with the intention that there'd be plenty of time for me to get back and I'd be back able to set up for this interview. And it got to probably about 20 past one and I'm looking at my watch and I'm thinking, well, let's be honest, I was looking at my phone and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to make it. Um, 25 past, I'm going to make it. Half an hour, I'm going to make it. And then at about 20 to two, I checked on Google Maps and it said I was a 37 minute walk away from my house. So I literally ran from where I was all the way home. It took me about 15 minutes. I think I got home at 1.57. I rushed to get a drink. I rushed to get my laptop set up. I rushed to get my microphone set up. And I managed to dial in just as Mike joined the call at 2 p.m. And then I spent the first 10 minutes of the interview trying to catch my breath and not give away the fact that I was absolutely finished. I was out of breath. I was sweating because it was so hot that day. I was a bit of a mess. So, you know, that happened. That doesn't happen every day. And then another fun fact about this episode is probably about the 20 minute mark, give or take, you'll hear, if you listen really closely, my doorbell ring. Um, So when this happened at the time, I heard the doorbell ring. I don't think Mike heard the doorbell ring. And I didn't want to interrupt Mike in the middle of a thought. So I'm patiently waiting for him to finish his thought. And when he's finished, which is about maybe a minute and 30 seconds after the doorbell had rung, I paused the interview to go and answer the door. Obviously, a minute and 30 seconds later, there's no one at the door. And then it turns out that it was actually my partner coming back from the walk with the dog because I had run off and left her walking the dog and I had the key. So she couldn't get into the house. I didn't know that. I went out after the interview was finished to go and find her because she hadn't come back yet. And she was outside laying on the grass with the dog reading Harry Potter. So that's two behind the scenes tidbits for you. And with that said, let's move on to the show. Here's the interview with Mike. Whereabouts are you now? Currently in the UK, which is actually quite rare, quite rare for me. <laughs> but I think I've been here just before all the pandemic stuff started. So I've been chilling in the UK for a couple of months. I think next stop would have been Tbilisi. So like in Georgia, near like nearish Turkey. But we'll see. Um, <laughs> with lockdown and everything else and people either opening or closing their borders, we'll, we'll see how that goes. So normally you travel for work a lot or do you just pick where you want to be? Yeah, so typically it's... Um, I think it's fueled by the desire to travel more so than the project. So being a digital nomad, I get to, so the idea was there's a desire to travel. A lot of people typically have either one or two problems. They've either got the time because maybe they're not working at present or they've got the money, but then don't have the time because they're probably busy running a company or something. So the idea is to kind of create this passive, um, mainly emphasis on passive income uh, so that you can kind of, killed two birds with one stone you'd have income coming in but you'd still be able to sustain some sort of lifestyle um so that's kind of pretty much what i did um i transitioned initially from being a permian corporate more corporate i say the corporate setting um to doing more of similar stuff but then building a whole business around it and that's where i think the term solopreneur comes from because it's not really about the scale and running a company of like 40 
developers, for instance, more just enough of a lifestyle business or lifestyle design, as they term it, <laughs> and just having that fuel your fuel your projects, basically. So I take advantage of both maybe a country or a location that I wanted to visit anyway, and and hoping that if it's actually a project that I wanted to work on, then that's a double whammy. So you regularly take freelance gigs depending on where you want to be? Yeah. So I kind of, so I think I, I think initially I kind of did go a bit crazy with the traveling. So I ended up every and every, um, pretty much everywhere. But then it got to a point where I was able to actually make the choice purely based off the desire of the project, not just the location. I think I had a few instances of that. I can't remember. It was one particularly, I think it might be the Olympics, uh, last Olympics uh, in Rio. And I, and I pretty much finished up a project anyway. I was chilling, getting ready to do, you know, summer and stuff. And then I get a call out of the blue from a recruiter uh, around lunchtime. And I think within the 12 hours, I literally, it was a random Friday. I was ready to go out. <laughs> it, like, I, was, I think I was in London, ready to go out with my friends and then, this recruiter comes at, like calls me at lunchtime. I'm like, okay, cool. And apparently they need an urgent, they've got an urgent requirement for a developer out in, like, I think it was Barcelona at the time. And literally within 12 hours, I was in Barcelona, like ready to jump for this project, like ready to go. So yeah, and I've had a few crazy instances like that. And I think the idea of having it be so free uh, in the term freelance, it makes it a lot easier to pick and choose what suits, what, what's suitable for me both in terms of availability and just interest in the general project. And then that's kind of what I've done for the last, I think, five years or so. So before that, you were you were permi, right? Yeah. So I was pretty much uh, straight out of uni and into, I think, my first perm role, which was more ethnography and research and then a little bit more of a development take. But I think the emphasis of development was a lot less in my earlier days. And then I slowly transition more into full-on just pure developer roles so i want to get into what ethnography is because i'll be honest that's the first time i ever heard the term so i'm super interested <laughs> but i was going to say before we get there so you transitioned from permi to what you do now and then in between were you freelance based you know in london or were you straight away freelance wherever you want to be uh, so i think generally speaking a lot of um digital nomads i think they take the full-on leap of like so I'll go from wherever they are at whether it's UK or US and then boom end up in like Thailand or like Bali somewhere so I did yeah so I couldn't make that such a like a, a rash jump so what I did was I so I, I think I'd done about a good year and a half in a small startup um, initially um, and this was like less than five people I think at their at their best as far as numbers um, so I was mainly mainly I think everything that I did was literally most of the income generating uh, activity so just one dev managing an existing project that was built by a whole different out a team that they outsourced initially before I got there so I did that for a bit for a, for a couple of airlines um, it was a really unique uh, development experience as far as being my first but also my one of my many sole developer roles that I ended up having so I did that for a bit moved transition more into then after another 18 months into a big corporate where I was literally just a number like I could go missing no one would notice kind of thing so I think once that kind of I got that out of my system I was in London at the time as well and I felt okay I, I want to try something different so I kind of came across this book called the four hour work week um, by Tim Ferriss 
they talk, they sold you a massive dream on, you know, like digital nomadism and how you'll be traveling left, right, and center. And to be fair, I mean, it's, it has come to fruition. Um, once I got the book and decided to implement what it was I, I'd learned, I decided, well, first things first, um, kind of transition slowly so it's not so uncomfortable. Um, I was used to a steady, a steady paycheck. So now going from that to, you know, pricing jobs, and then you could have times of, you can have up and down times as far as the stream. So that was probably my hardest thing to resist. So once I kind of made peace with that, I said, all right, cool. I'll just, luckily my transition was pretty straightforward because it was about not the skill set that I had already honed over the last three years. Development was pretty much going to stay the same. It was just understanding the business around what it now means to be an entity of one or a business of one or a company of one. So that was my learning curve. The actual development, um, it actually allowed me to see multiple code bases and realize some consistencies and inconsistencies between different companies and projects, which I think would have not been something I would have seen had I been, say, one place in particular for an extended period of time, for example. So I think my first gig, um, I might have leveraged an existing relationship with one of my earlier companies. So this was with one of the bigger OEM, OEM manufacturers. And then they did this, they had this specific unique um, project that I wanted to get um, involved in. It was, it was to do with teaching kids how to, how to write code, but in a more playful fashion than we're particularly used to. So they in, in, invented this uh, micro bit that they would use. It's, like a, it's basically like a PCB. And you could just connect it to your phone and then you can create any app or at least any basic app just to kind of teach you the fundamentals of coding. So that was pretty much my first project. I stayed there for a bit, got extended. And then after doing that, I was like, okay, uh, now, now what? So I started kind of started looking at how do I market myself? How do I get my skill set in front of people? And then lo and behold, I think that same year, I think shortly after that, that's when I kind of started working with uh, some cosmetic companies and then got called out eventually for, I believe it was the, the Olympics that year. So the Rio Olympics that year. And that's kind of how that went. So question is, did you actually finish the four hour work week? Because I've tried to read it three times and I get about a third of the way through and I get so hyped up that I just can't finish it and I just go and do something. Yeah, I think I was, I was lucky to... Um, it was one of the first the few books back then that I would take from start and literally finish. Because I know there's a part where you get near to the end and he just starts listing a ton of links and you're like, okay, cool. Got to check that out. Got to check that out. So I can remember that bit for most people. It's like, okay, once you got to that point, you're like, wow, okay, what now? Like it's, so I think for me, luckily enough, I did finish the book. I, I read it multiple times and I still pick it up every now and again. I think the initial part for me was, I think my desire at the time to be that free was so strong. So it felt like the classic or cliched life-changing experience of reading the book, actually putting it to fruition and having that pretty much set the pace for everything that was going to come next. I mean, I'd read, I'd read a few books, maybe not in that arena book. It was pretty straightforward. It was just like you, you know, set up a business and there's multiple ways to do it. You could even become remote first and then kind of pull away from the traditional permi role. So there was multiple ideas inside the book. And I think I was just lucky that I didn't have to go into a whole new um, arena before beforehand. So if I was like, I don't know, if I was trying to now do graphic design all of a sudden or marketing coming from development, that challenge might have put me off a bit. But yeah, but because it was already development and I just happened to pick something that 
made itself quite, I guess, versatile in this manner. It was pretty straightforward to, I guess, navigate into freelancing and then work on passive income sources around that to kind of tie up the loose ends because you get you you could get gaps um, of, of time where you're like, hmm, what am I supposed to do now? So I think my next original, oh, I guess, natural progression to that was to make projects for myself to kind of eat up the time, but also just I guess sharpen my sword and just keep you know keep keep in the game really because it's so weird where you you can move from one place to another and then realize okay the industry's changed but clearly these guys haven't caught up yet or vice versa maybe these guys are trying something new and it's not been seen before so it's great to get your hands stuck in different projects in that way oh definitely so in terms of like passive income streams do you have you created apps for yourself that do that or other things that do that yeah so it's it's weird because i think generally it's led by most of my freelance work so active the active portion of it i have worked on yeah i've worked on other apps in the past um whereby there could have been different uh, payment strategies like for example not even the monetization but just in the sense of you get paid maybe in shares to a company or or looking at you know those kind of um, options working on some of my own projects you always get the case by of, of balancing you want to do your own work but at the same time, maybe this once in a lifetime opportunity with a certain client comes along, you're like, okay, cool, park that for a bit, do this. So I've had that up and down for a while. I've got several projects in kind of anywhere ranging between 60 to like 90% complete. So I think with this downtime, it's been amazing to be able to kind of emphasize those a little bit more, um, getting to even more as things a little bit outside that, like uh, course creation, um, looking at not only seeking a mentor, but also maybe being a mentor. So that's also been an arena I've looked at. Um, in the digital nomad space, I know they've got loads of other things like uh, dropship that they throw out there a lot. Um, there's um, having even creating products and then having that be your passive source of income. So I've dabbled in several of those. Some of them have come off really well, but I guess as of now, I think most of them are still secondary to freelance gigs because I think per unit time, they seem to they seem to win on that case. But I'm still working on building some of the others as well. So do you feel like there's any kind of misconceptions about what being a digital nomad is because I know like to me when I first heard the term it seemed like if you weren't just solely maintaining a passive income stream of you know drop shipping or maybe you've got apps that are, are making you sales or you're selling a product and if you're actually doing work that means you know for the next five days I have to do work then you're not a digital nomad that doesn't count yeah oh, it's um it's a tough one I think I've over the years the definition has been vague enough I guess, to, as you say, to, to cause that um, confusion whereby at one, at one, on one side you feel like, well, if I've only got one source, then am I a nomad or is it just that I happen to own a job? Because I feel like that's what I, that's, how, that's kind of how I identified in the beginning. I felt like if I was, say, a freelancer, for example, you technically own a job. It's not a company that would, you know, necessarily scale and then have 40 employees or whatever. You can outsource everything and delegate and all that but it's um, definitely not the same but I think in any capacity even taking away the part of I guess the desire to travel um, I think the definition really was the idea of whatever ecosystem you created as long as you were there or thereabouts when it came to look, being location independent then that would be ultimately what pushed you into the category of being either a, a nomad or not because I think with for example remote work 
I think that was still con that still constituted being a digital nomad. Literally, just changing your permanent role into more of a remote remote setting was enough to qualify at the time. I think nowadays it's it's been redefined in previous times, just because I think there are many more ways to do things passively than actively. But I think for yeah for the for the average I think the average friend friend uh, nomad friend I've got most of the cases they've got one sole source of income that's their big portion of the pie, and then maybe smaller passive streams. So in terms of finding work, being a you know digital nomad, location independent, remote and that kind of thing, how difficult do you find it to find work compared to, because recruiters call all the time, right? And most of the time, you know, I got a job in London, yeah, I got yeah. a job here, here, but it's, it's, it's rare that you get a call where they're like, yeah, we need an Android developer, we need an iOS developer, you can work wherever yeah. you want, just, you know, we need you to start now. So how, how hard do you find that or how easy do you find that to find that kind of work? Yeah, I think... I might have had a lot of practice uh, in maybe my perm days. Yeah, I remember in the early phases, there was definitely a drop in, I guess, engagement when it came to how many recruiters would call you, especially once I made the official transition. My, you know, all my public profiles were basically different. I think it's one of those things where that's kind of what forced me to kind of look more into the whole idea of the marketing aspect probably is something I should look further into. So I tried... A few other options, um, and especially keeping myself very visible online on job boards, uh, making posts that might you know indicate to people that you're, you're looking for a new challenge or you're looking to seek something different. And I will say, yeah, the engagement is definitely different in the freelance world. But I think it's that catch twenty two of I think again, luckily I had some development experience. But if this was a new arena, I think the first question would be, you want a role, but then where do you get the experience to fulfill that? first role because they always tend to need some experience so I had I still felt exactly the same skill set was being reused from my perm days to my freelance when I first began so I was already a developer with a few years under my belt anyway it, it just felt like the only difference really was the business structure around what I did um, the perks that I had as far as being more I guess more free to manage my own time were maybe the those were probably things that were that took took a bit of getting used to. So the idea that yeah, you probably still you might do your development day to day, but you still got extra activities to worry about, like um, you know making sure that recruiters know you're available or clients that you've worked with previously, sort of know where you're going to be back on the market, so that if they've got something reoccurring. And I feel like that's kind of a it's a it's a carousel, but I, I guess in this one it it does move at your pace. So if you end up in a scenario where because initially for me, I'd planned it out as far as having maybe six to nine months of active work. And then with lower pressure of having just the other three months being fulfilled by passive work, it, it felt attainable. But then you get to a point sometimes where you might get comfortable because you've got a, cl a particular client or, or two that happen to be basically giving you most of you know, your income. So I think it was just that, um, the constant re-engaging and making sure that you, you don't sit too... Um, you know, sit too still for too long. You just definitely need to keep exercising the muscle. So I think in between projects, I got over the I chase them sort of thing. So I think once, by the time I transitioned over, I felt like the clients and projects were just coming to me because they felt like the match was just that good that we should have engaged. So I felt like that's what was happening. It was rare that I would actually go out and actively go on job boards and apply. Yeah. Like, it's kind of more just like you put a sign up, like I'm available and then people was just... Yeah, and if anything, it, it, they kind of gravitated to me. Yeah, precisely. Just give me one sec. I think there's someone at the door, so... 
I'm not worried. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't appear to be there anymore. So this is the beauty of a podcast. You can do editing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's always I, the deliveries nowadays. I just don't understand. Like you're literally getting your, your stuff frisbeed at you. And then yeah, you yeah, just leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either it's being frisbeed at you or there's other people's stuff being frisbeed at you. Like, can you just hold on to this yeah. for a minute? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Jeez. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Wicked. All right, cool. So let's quickly jump into, because I'm, I'm super interested um, in, oh, where is it? The word is escaping me now. Ethnography. So go for it. What, what is it? And ex- explain to me like that kind of stuff you've done with it. Because like I said, I've literally never heard the word before. And then I quickly Googled it and it sounds super interesting, but I don't want to pretend like I know because I have no idea. So, <laughs> no so worries. You, you go for it. Yeah. So I literally, um, so it, the idea of it or the premise of it literally is, um, it's a, it, it leans more towards the social sciences. So the idea of it literally is that you're doing uh, sort of like an interview or an observation into the cultural customs, behavioral patterns of said demographic in a particular content. So for me, um, I think my, the first instance I ever had of it was on my third year dissertation. So the idea was looking at how Android apps play, what, what, what part do they play or what part do digital services play in the, in the arena of going out nightlife? Like how would you use your, how would you use an app in night, nightlife to kind of, maybe enhance the experience or maybe make people uh, feel more safe. So the idea was you would go out, I would interview people on campus and I'd ask them basically to kind of poke and prod at problems that they might face. So it's basically like market research. It literally feels like market research, but in a more social science context. So you would ask some questions through either interview, you would look at case studies. You you yourself maybe even would um, embed yourself in that environment so you can get as close as possible to the actual true experience of these individuals. I ended up doing that in one of my internships actually, which came off the back of that project. So I lived in with this one guy. Um, uh, I think we were doing digital service. We were looking into digital services around the home. So i.e. Facebook, BBC, iPlayer, all this, all these kind of services. And I would basically sit with this guy and just observe his moves. How long did he spend on particular services? Did he transition between different services? Why did he transition? And taking all that data, compiling it into a report that then helps then inform the design stage of a particular service. So it's almost like a backwards approach. So rather than me going, you know what, I like a certain SDK, let me try it out, create an app and hope that people, it takes to the market. You kind of reverse engineer it and decide to look at exactly what problems need to be solved and then literally use those to define your use cases. And once your use cases are defined, you're now talking about wireframes and design, use, uh, UX designs off the back of that. And then eventually you get coding, you write your tests and then bang, you have an app. So from the start to end, the ethnographic portion really is the research and the formulating of that research in the way that makes sense to the designers so they can actually make use cases out of it and the business analysts that can make uh, use cases out of it. So it, it, it spans any context. Um, as long as you you have an aim, usually typically just to understand the problem domain. So you never go in thinking you're going to design something for it, but it's just to be as open-minded as possible and kind of just see where and when um, there's an opportunity for you to pretty much create something to solve that problem. So how, yeah, how, how many, how many places have you, or does this come anywhere into your freelance work or do, have you worked with companies that make use of that? Yeah. So I feel, um, I think the most recent occurrence, 
probably is, I mean, the closest thing to that that I've seen, I would say, is probably uh, the guys at Google. So they've got, I mean, Google's massive. They've got several different branches and different um, arenas that they work in. And I think one thing that was, that lured me into this project particularly is because if I ever had a choice to work on a project, I think having my fair share of, you know, the more commercial apps, uh, ones that have tight deadlines and really strict release cycles, this one was all about, um, it almost removed the concept of time. Um, they were looking at it more of, from a POC perspective. Um, so the, proving any kind of concept is great because you have, you remove a lot of those limitations of you need X number of working men, working hours, uh, a team has to be of this size, et cetera, et cetera. You're pretty much left to really explore the art of development from a more creative lab aspect. So that's pretty much what they did. Um, they, I think they run these experiments uh, on and off. And the idea here was uh, as people, I mean, continuous, uh, they continue to increase their screen time. It's a lot easier to now consider yourself where you can say, okay, I'm, I'm, ex I'm exhibiting symptoms of, you know, social fatigue or whatever that is, social media fatigue or just screen time fatigue in general. So what they wanted to do is uh, they have noticed that in their particular application, uh, there's not a great deal of notification management. So your notifications just come in, right? I mean, you're at the mercy of the vendor. If you, you download a certain app, they might go bonkers with the, <laughs> with the notifications. You get, they get told you every and everything that's happening in the app and it might not be of any use to you. There's no real way to, it's kind of an on and off kind of switch with it. Yes. So what they did is they just started creating a bunch of launching, launch screen apps that would help the user understand and manage at least better, at least in this case, the notification aspect of things. So I think the three that I worked on touched on it in different aspects and they took different approaches. Um, I remember, I think there was one called Desert Island. And as the name suggests, it literally was about the idea of being, so you're, you, you've got an app and then you basically, if I'm on a remote island, for example, there's only certain applications that I really care about at that moment. So I would, uh, as soon as you install the app and you launch it, your home screen starts to walk you through a process of pretty much customizing it. So you put certain apps on that you would imagine to be using in a particular context. And then those would be prioritized when it comes to notifications, for example. So that was one angle that they took. I think the other one that was quite interesting for me was the idea of, I believe it was Morph. So this app was interesting because um, it brought in, again, a part of um, ethnography, which is uh, context awareness, at least for the application's perspective. So the apps should just know, um, based off your location, that, oh, you're in the gym. So now you're, you're talking about using apps like Strava and your step app rather than, and maybe your music player, and then maybe not your emails because you don't care about those at that moment and vice versa. So like if I'm, I'm in home mode right now, it would be more anything that can let me relax and chill would be my initial emphasis. So it used that uh, paradigm pretty much to navigate which apps to present you as the, as the user. So that's kind of how that worked. Okay, that's super interesting. So, so you brought it up. So, I'm I'm gonna see if I can dig a little bit deeper. Um, so, so you you're a freelancer, you're a digital nomad, and now you're you're freelancing at Google, right? This is a freelance. Yeah, so I was. I did. Yeah, I did a couple months. I literally short of a couple of months there. Um, in the beginning, uh, beginning of the year, actually. Um, so just before all the craziness ensued uh, with the pandemic and everything, they had uh, these this requirement to kind of patch these apps up uh, and actually just 
clean up some of the stuff that they were working on. Because essentially, if these experiments go to plan, what that typically means is now they've got something where they could actually potentially want to infuse deeper into the OS. So I thought that was already was a selling point for me. Um, being part of the experiment was one thing, but just to have something that kind of almost changes the narrative um, as it's done in previous aspects. I mean, if, if we look at exactly what they've done with uh, some of the newer design patterns and architectures, for example, I mean, people were doing their own bespoke versions of uh, MVM, MVVM and MVP before Google started implementing it and baking it into the OS. So I felt like even with this, which is something, again, just a small touch, but it's just the idea of having a notification um, management now be something that's at the heart or core of their OS. So that was kind of something that um, gravitated me towards that particular project. So I think I've got a couple extensions and then we, I quickly just decided to wrap it up and just, especially I think in going into Feb slash March, I think a lot of stuff was slowing down. We had the off payroll stuff going on. There was just a bunch of stuff going on this year. So I felt like it was great to just get that experience, finish up and then just to see what's going to happen next really they, i think they're still all they're all on the app store right now and they're just looking at the data looking at the use cases seeing why and how people are gravitating and using them through analytics and then that will be something that they can then use to inform version two yeah i thought it was really interesting that they'll take an idea bake it into an app and then you know if, if it ends up doing what they think it's going to do it will be part of the os as opposed to yeah. just putting it in the OS and see if people want it or not. Because they've done stuff like that before where, you know, you get you get the beta and all the way up to release, there's this feature you really like, and then it comes out and they took it away. Because and like, we, don't, like, yeah, we, we don't know why. <laughs> is to people not want to use it? Was it not ready? Yeah. This is a really interesting way for them to go about it. So, yeah, that's pretty cool that you got to work on that. Yeah, and I think it was, um, I think it reminded me again as to what I liked about the, I guess, the non technical aspects of the development process. Because I feel like as far as coming out of uni, I was under the impression that I could literally walk into a home of someone's or an office of someone's, conduct my study, get my results, go into design, develop, and then obviously release the app. But then finding out that you don't even need to do all of those things. It's so much work that they are their own roles. That was also a great degree of freedom and flexibility I had with freelance because I could dabble into the idea of just the research and not even touch the code or in most cases I would probably opt more for the physical nitty-gritty and the development but I thought it made me a better developer um, just by understanding the pipeline of work that's necessary to get me to the point where I'm placed with you know anywhere between 10 to 50 wireframes and figuring out why they're designed the way they're designed. Yeah it sounds like it's a good way because you get to see the process before the work gets to you. So then you yeah. know what went in to get it to you, depending on which company you work on. Because I've worked on some companies where they definitely didn't go through that process. They just gave me work. They're like, <laughs> hey, go build this. It's going to be a million dollar idea. Yeah. And I feel like I've dabbled with that in the past. Um, and I think with the experience of not, at the time, I guess not, I've always guessed, I've, I guess I've always voiced my um, concern with that. But yeah, I guess it, as you said, it depends on the the company you're in, it the does. attitudes might some people, not be the they same. They don't want to hear it. Some people don't want to hear it. At some point, yeah. you just give up the argument, don't you? Exactly. So you always feel like, you know, it's just, at some point you can, you're in a lucky enough space, you can offer that input and not even feel like you're going to be um, shut down. But most cases, you probably will. So I think that's kind of why I prefer 
if there's ever a context where you've got a more creative lab kind of scenario, A, P, O, C type of um, atmosphere, I think it's so much, so different compared to say a greenfield project where your everything has pretty much been decided. All you need to do is slot in, do your bit and kind of get out. So I've played with both and I definitely prefer the former, um, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah, likewise. I mean, I don't mind the, I don't mind the greenfield. Really, it depends on the scenario. Like if I, if I take a free month because, you know, I, I want some money to go traveling, I don't care. But you know, if yeah. I'm gonna if I'm gonna commit time to it, and I'm giving you my opinion, and you guys are like, no, this this is we don't care, then that's probably yeah. not for me either. A hundred percent, hundred percent. I think I I experienced that as well. Um, thankfully, with one of the one of the clients I had in the I think banking sector, they were quite. I think they were number one, and they still are at the time. Um, and they they had this idea of going in with a pretty much fresh face. I mean, you are just adding yet another feature <laughs> into the dozens that they've already got. But at least that particular feature, um, I guess on both instances, because I worked in two major parts of the application, they, they did take that approach of, so the research was already done. And as far as a developer, um, I guess you earned your spot on the team um, if you did speak out and you did voice any concerns. I mean, this is in addition to the idea of having other challenges that we haven't even got into, like time zone differences. Um, if you work with a team offshore and they are eight hours ahead of you, it's like so difficult to pretty much manage the workload. I mean, if you have a miscommunication and then they find out about it as they come in and you've just left and then you've lost the whole day trying to undo some of that. So I think there were so many different things there um, or managing a team that constantly shrinks and then grows again. Um, there's, yeah, there's loads of... Loads of um, aspects of having a larger team, a dispersed team, everyone with different opinions, different views, cultural attitudes towards development. We somehow made it work, but it's definitely, it definitely wasn't easy. I could imagine. I mean, I've done like remote res. well, probably the last few years have been remote. Um, and I've only come across a couple of situations where time zones come into play. Um, but really, it doesn't seem like it's a problem until something goes wrong. And then you get that scenario where you mentioned where <laughs> yeah. I don't know that went wrong until tomorrow and they don't know it went wrong until yeah, the day after. Yeah, you're just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's just like day, days of time wasted. Yeah, definitely. So my next question. So I, I think like we're getting close to, to wrapping this up. I've got a couple of like random quick fire questions. Maybe maybe not so quick. You don't have to be quick, but you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Awesome. Um, so the first question is, why did you choose Android and not iOS? Right. Yeah. So for me, um, I, I was, I think, a student around this time when I wanted to do my final year dissertation. Uh, this was the time of like, you know, when the BlackBerry was out. Yeah, people had the BlackBerry Curve and the Bold. There's like HTC One. It was like 2011, something like this, right? Yeah, early part of the last decade. So I'm wrapping up. Like, I mean, as a student, I always felt like the money thing was tight. I was like, look. I got myself, I sided with Android from the get-go. iPhone was shiny and I admired iOS's aesthetics and just, I think their brand loyalty, even to this day, again, un remarkable. And from a social science perspective, I was like, how do they get these people hooked? Like, because you would have people that would swear by Apple, swear oh, by yeah. iOS. They could sell you anything. <laughs> couldn't tell you anything about the specs. <laughs> so I felt like it was so interesting to see that be of not importance when it pertained to Apple. Now, if you put a Windows machine in front of them now, like that might change. It would be, they'd be questioning the RAM, you know, the hard drive and all sorts. So I felt like with phones, it was a similar thing. It was, there was also a lot of competition, I think amongst my friends. I mean, as I said, we had BlackBerry, we had ATC, we had 
the first couple of iPhone iterations, I mean, there was only a select few at the time that used to have those. Um, people were still hot, stuck on the physical button, so BlackBerry was taken, you know, taken over as well. So I just kind of, I mean, with, with the resources I had, I knew Java, knew XML, and owned an Android phone. I mean, the Android phone I owned at the time was literally one of the old school, low budget, I think it was the, might have been the, the T-Mobile um, variant. It was very, literally low budget. And I thought, okay, this is my toolkit. This is what I'm gonna work with. Um, I've seen iOS. I, at the time, didn't even really know any iOS developers. Because um, I think from a course perspective, my idea of, I was a computer science anyway, computer, computer science student anyway, I gathered, in some capacity, I was going to be a software developer. I had no idea about language, platforms, or any of that. I just knew if I wanted to make a mobile app, these were the resources I had to my disposal. This is how I was going to be an Android developer. Um, and from there, I pretty much went on to make this really massive monolith of an app. It was literally an early version of WhatsApp, Uber, <laughs> and Foursquare at the time, which was, I think, quite, quite, good, uh, quite hot at the time. So it was around the idea of nightlife uh, and you would basically go out in the context of the night and then you're going to network with your friends on beforehand. So you need some kind of event generation then message each other on the night out. You need to know roughly where each other was far from a location perspective. And there was all these aspects to it. And then there was trying to book cabs all in one app, mind you. So I mean, nowadays we know that that is definitely not the way to go. I mean, that's, four, <laughs> that's four big apps right there. So I felt like that was something that I um, kind of, yeah, just, and I think the access to it, uh, from, not from an accessibility as far as UX, but just the idea that I could literally get, I think it was Eclipse at the time we used. So you get Eclipse, download this SDK and you're, and you're off. Whereas from what I remember, Apple was a little bit more, um, reserved and restricted in that aspect you definitely had to pay like 99 dollars or whatever it was for the license um, yeah and i wasn't even sure if it was per year or one-off i don't I remember still don't i just remember it yeah I, I think i think it's a rolling thing but i don't i have no idea yeah i remember that being one of the caveats um xcode again i was on a windows machine at the time as well so there were so many restrictions i literally as far as computer science as a whole so everything from data structures all the way to I think some of the C++ stuff I did I attribute that to the course itself everything else was pretty much self-taught as far as Android uh, we had one literally one module that was covering Android but as you probably are aware the at the time the life cycle was so short you're talking about gingerbread but these guys already got ice cream sandwich out and, and honeycomb so Already being behind the curve in that sense, I think I remember just taking a bunch of time to hit YouTube and just literally teach myself everything I knew at the time. Uh, I think Coursera and Udemy, Udemy and all these other platforms were just in their infant stage. There was not a lot if you wanted to be an Android developer. Maybe marketing, graphic design, plethora of, you know, maybe photography, but development specific, not much until recent. So it's all just been self-taught and just making sure that you understand that there is no point in time where you'll know everything there is to know about the platform. It just changes too frequently. Even even technologies and stuff. Yeah, in general. The way yeah, the way that I approach it is, you know, if I go for an interview or if somebody asks me, do I know something? It's like no, but I can find out because there's no way that you yeah. know everything. You know what you've done, and then really, there's no point learning other things until you get there because you don't know if you're going to need it. 
And by the time you actually do need it, there's probably something else. The, the platform is way too big for me to just casually be like, you know what, this API sounds good. Let me just dabble with this one as well. And that one, and that one. I've definitely been strategic in that aspect. Um, I would pick stuff that was definitely going to be attractive to the end clients I imagined myself working with. So I think with, um, in particular, I always, I, I think I was very well engrossed in the media space and streaming and vi video on demand. I think even in those early phases, Apple pretty much had it together with, I think they had HLS at the time. Android was struggling. It was like behind every step of the way. So there was a large um, R&D component in my career where I just spent a good year or so figuring out what video platforms were available on Android. How do you stream? What's a, what's a transcoder? What's the watermarking aspect? How do these files actually work at a granular level? And then from there, it made it easy to just branch out into stuff that was also applicable. I mean, I would think I was working on that just before the bring your own device revolution. So now everyone's got their own phone. You deliver the video in a completely different manner than we would have done on say some of my other clients applications. Yes. Yeah. That's super interesting. I've only recently started looking at media player stuff just for fun. And um, I would have thought by now it was so much more mature that you could just, you know, jump into a tutorial and get through it. And it's it's still like you can jump into a tutorial and get through it. But then when you get to the end, it still doesn't work and you still have to figure out the rest. <laughs> so. Yeah. Then there's all the politics around, you know, DRM and copyright management. Yeah. Unless you're leveraging somebody else's APIs, there isn't a whole great, there's not a great deal that you could basically get away with. So next question. See, as I said, quick fire questions, but I think it's, I, I ask them quick fire, but I want like a long form answer. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the next question is, do you have any tools, tips or tricks that you think other app developers should know about, but they might not? Yeah. Yeah. This actually touches on your previous point about getting into a scenario where you would only dabble with an SDK. Yeah. Unless you wouldn't only, you would only dabble with an SDK if and when you needed one. So I would say, I think one thing that I've done that's helped me is if, as I said, uh, looking at the clients that I want to work with, I kind of try and envisage what it is they would potentially be using. And if I can't get experience on that, then I would create my own experience just by using the SDK, creating a sample app and then experience and then displaying that I have interfaced with this before. So it's not going to be foreign to me. Uh, I think the second quick tip I would probably say is maybe, uh, I think going through a lot of courses, I've also known, noticed as well that there's so much, I mean, as Android matures, I've noticed that there is actually a direct correlation with the amount of boilerplate you end up having to write. <laughs> so I've, I think I found out recently about um, live templates and the idea of just, you pretty much create a shortcut uh, that would kind of allow you to create stuff, especially mod, uh, maybe mod, uh, particular functions that you would write over and over and over again. I can make a simple shortcut like um, maybe PS, PF, and then that would literally be public static void main if I was in the Java, in the Java world, for example. You could do the same for maybe if you're writing you know, recycle of views or if you're writing you know, network library type stuff as well, where it's all the same type of code that only has very slight nuances between from a project to project. So I think doing that saves a lot of time. So any time saving aspect, I would say, yeah, live aspect, live templates is a great one for saving time. You literally predefine your shortcut ahead of time. It means something to you. As soon as you type those letters out, the IDE knows, okay, boom, I need to just insert this whole function in. So it's pretty much like autocomplete, but on steps. <laughs> just so I find that really useful. Um, so a fun one is what machine do you use to work with? 
So as I mentioned earlier, I was of the Windows family back in the day. Um, those days are way behind me now. <laughs> um, the number of uh, the number of MacBooks I've gone through over the years. Uh, right now, I'm using one of the one of the. So there was a point in time I think where they had an issue with some of the status bars, right? So once they revised that and done a bunch of silent upgrades, I was like, I think it's time. So I got one early last year. Um, but prior to that, I'd also had a MacBook, but it was a 13-inch MacBook. And I think the higher emphasis was on being mobile and be able to travel with it. But I've gotten so good at packing right now, it's like I can get everything in one suitcase no matter where I'm going. So now having a 15-inch machine with a bit more power definitely definitely helps get things and they're, done. They're really good for battery life if you're traveling as well, right? Yeah, really good. My, my last touch at Windows machines was their, ba- or at least running Windows on a machine was the battery life was not good. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. It's weird as well because Windows has this thing where anything it's it's weird that it's tied to price point but anything in that 500 mark that is just about cutting it only works well if you're literally doing nothing other than office work and light intense as soon as you're talking about development all of a sudden you have to start thinking about having twice as much ram as everyone else like and having you know a, a crazy crazy amount of um, storage so for me i think that was the case with this like I didn't fully customize it, but I definitely made sure that knowing about Moore's law and all that, I wouldn't opt for, say, an eight gigabyte machine in this climate, knowing that I want it to last, you know, at least five years. So you start thinking about, you know, 16 gig. It comes at a steep price, but I feel like it then pays for itself as the years progress, as long as you look after it. Yeah, and it saves you money going forward, right? Because if it's only, if it's going to last for five years now as opposed to two, you don't have to shell out all that money in two years' time for a new one. Precisely. And I feel like that's just a that's a really um, strange thing that I notice in a lot of projects and a lot of companies as well. I mean, thankfully, I've had the benefit of both. I've used company-specific machines. I've used my own machines. What's always interesting is how these companies manage to literally grind perfectly working machines to a halt because i think the custom os and having experience with that i just thought yeah this is so strange that at the mercy of security unfortunately performance sometimes suffer and it's like you know the, you get one the early, i guess the only saving grace with that is you're always at uh, of the understanding that at least if there is a technical problem it's usually their problem because it's probably something that's wrong with their device i've had instances where you're trying to debug your own machine but because it's your machine, it's your issue. So yeah, it's yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And it's it's hard to tell the end client like, oh, I wasted a day because my machine is just not working. <laughs> yeah. So like, we're we're not paying oh, you. Oh yeah. That. <laughs> I literally, I think I could, I should, I should write an intro on like onboarding because I've done it so many times. I feel like it's not, it's not a thing anymore. Being the new guy in the office doesn't really phase me anymore. And just the onboarding process, so many uniform similarities, but there's also key uh distinctions i feel like with for example with google i, I literally brought my own machine so i mean there was no setup but there's companies where you get like two three days of onboarding or then maybe you've got to be you've got to wait for like a week to be approved someone's literally just going to press a button to say just waiting for accounts to be set up <laughs> yeah. you're like i could have done, yeah, you done this when i wasn't here and then yeah I could to just approve start. your permissions it's yeah it's a bit it's a bit nuts but yeah i think all of that stuff around development again maybe creates material for a whole other podcast in itself yeah. <laughs> um, it's so interesting to um kind of get an insight into all of those challenges in addition to just your everyday like day-to-day problem solving as a developer especially if if you're if you're new to going into it you assume i'm just going to go in they're going to give me something to write and i go write it and then like you said you yeah. might be waiting five days before you can actually do anything 
And then you get into that awkward situation where it's like, well, I have to pretend like I'm doing something, but I have nothing that I can do. That's all. That's always it was a fun crazy. One. I've I've had clients that you're, yeah. I mean, you're not getting started for maybe six weeks, so you're just chilling. You're you're supposed to spend that time kind of understanding the source code, understanding the problem domain, but then because you're not set up, you don't have the relevant access, and then it's like, okay, so what do I do now? Like, I need to be useful. I need to be productive. I need to create some use case for why the hell they hired me so i mean yeah there's loads of yeah there's loads of issues with that i think I, I found that um i think people were more forgiving in my perm days when that happened because i know there was obviously an instance where you know the onboarding is going to take forever i think when you're a freelancer there's such a high expectation um, or just an external resource in general there's a high expectation to just hit the ground running be familiar with the unfamiliar you're going to be thrown in at a code base that you might think should be way better than in the condition it actually is in. Which is like 99% of the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like how many code bases have you been into and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. It never happens. It seldom happens. Unless it's a sample app that's literally no more than 100 lines. Oh yeah, then you can't mess that up. <laughs> yeah. After that, it's like scalability becomes an issue. It's like now we'll, we'll think about refactoring at a later date so at this point we're talking about version 9 and we're still you know <laughs> we've got, we've got legacy code in there that we shouldn't have i think that's probably one of the biggest problems i've um i guess i've seen as well because android doesn't seem to be getting any smaller as a as a as a platform and i think the overhead now for developers to now have to maintain knowledge of two main operate like object oriented programming languages is just it's beyond me like i see i used to see it with swift and ios and think yeah you guys are suffering but then kotlin got adopted and i was like oh man but thankfully kotlin's amazing but just the idea of having to still look at a class sometimes go in for a client and then go wait i know full well that i should be rewriting this in kotlin but that poses its own challenges if say you know testing is not up to scratch so you kind of just work around the creeks in their application and just hope that it doesn't just come toppling over. Like, so I think that's a very big challenge. Um, hopefully we would have phased out some of the older languages and older design paradigms in favor of new stuff. But because things keep changing, no one's ever all on the same playing field. No, no, there's always, there's always more that you need to know. And then things like this, you know, you think, you think you're really good at Android, you know, Java, and then Kotlin comes in and there's some new kid who suddenly knows everything about Kotlin and you have no idea what he's talking about or shape because now they're ahead of you, even though you're like, hold on a minute, I've got six years behind me. <laughs> yeah, precisely. I think that reset button was um, definitely um, shaky. It felt shaky, especially for my career, because I felt anything I had to know about Kotlin at the time, again, the same catch-22 of needing the experience beforehand, but not really having an opportunity to, to get the experience. You just had to create an app that would allow you to play with it and get familiar with it enough to be, for you to then be able to claim that, okay, look, I can still do this, 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 and this. I understand the fundamentals of X, Y, Z. I think it happened with a lot of libraries as well. Um, and I guess that is something that is a side effect of sometimes being on, not necessarily with one client, but with on one project for an extended period of time. It's nice to almost have it as your baby and kind of nurture it and then see it grow and blossom. But then at the expense sometimes of not keeping up to date with what's, you know, what the new stuff is. So I think it's just a, yeah, it's a balance of teaching yourself outside of the confines of say, whatever project you happen to be working on at that moment. 
So what do you think separates a okay developer from a great developer? Uh, right. So I think over the years with um, interviews, understanding everything from onboarding, you're still running a business um, and all that other stuff. I feel like maybe it's the emphasis on maybe more soft skills and just the idea that soft, the soft is just, if not more important than the hard um, hard skills because I think you get a lot of I guess maybe more this might even be more of a misconception and a stereotype on the industry as a whole but you get um, a lot of people's idea of a developer as being someone very introverted um, very much to themselves remote working out of a cupboard in the middle of nowhere would be an ideal location as <laughs> um, as away from as many people as possible you know to themselves let them get on with it but I felt that's kind of that already boxes you into a certain type of role. And I think over the years, uh, I think if you're going to be anywhere, maybe similar, you know, analogous to say Google or anywhere um, where they've got more of a people facing, client facing attitude, I think that's something that you just have to come to grips with. I mean, for me personally, I'm, I am quite the ambivert. I'm not super extroverted, but I'm not on the other end of the spectrum either. So I think over time, I've just developed this idea of being able to just be understand that technical skill is definitely important but also know that the soft skills are just as important and of course most cases it will be some sort of team dynamic so you need to kind of understand the higher level pain points and design decisions and not let that um almost come in conflict with your ego and feel like okay i know this design pattern should be done like this but they've put this button here why so i think yeah understanding the why will probably be, for, for most, for me, it's definitely helped with communication um, and rapport between me and other developers or any team member for that matter. It helps me kind of remove most of what would have been conflict and just sort of reach a common understanding from the jump. And then you just realize, okay, that needs to be done that way because that designer is understood from whatever research they've done that. That's how it's meant to be architected versus almost like bending the app around what my current level of expertise is at the time. So for example, I think, I think you might have instances where, you know, you might only know a, a said few um, methods of concurrency, for example. You've got an app that clearly needs more of a coroutine approach and you're still stuck maybe on say async tasks or loaders going, this is the only thing I know right now, so this is how we're gonna make this work. So I feel like, yeah, stuff like that's definitely, um, uh, a great thing maybe not refactoring too soon and kind of not um resisting the urge to fight iteration so you have to write that terrible line of code or that terrible module that terrible function first and always go back and revisit it as long as you've got the the chance and the creative capacity to do to be allowed to do so within that project that's going to help i mean sometimes you might be on a project with a really tight deadline and it's not so easy but it being that you're satisfying an end client, you've got you've got both things to consider as well. It needs to be to your standard of whatever perfection is, but it also needs to be done in a way that doesn't block development or you don't become a bottleneck. So yeah, it's it's a trade-off. And I guess just uh, I think the one last thing I would say is probably remaining a student of the game. As I said before, you you just will not know everything. I mean, there's a new framework released every week, so it's impossible to keep on top of it and just be in the know of every single thing. 
I think, yeah, it's just practice and mastering the craft. Uh, and the only way you're going to do that is just to continuously do it, whether you're being paid or not. Just find a way to continuously practice your craft. And that's the only way you can kind of stay, not even necessarily on top, but at least just in the conversation so that you've got more options to navigate. Yeah, you definitely want to stay in the conversation. I would agree with everything you said in the answer. Cool. So that's everything from me. Do you have any projects or anywhere that you want me to point people to where they could find you, you know, Twitter or Instagram or GitHub or whatever? I guess working on my website, actually, now, like just refining it and adding some more content that I want to create on that. And yeah, having maybe um, a look at my GitHub, it's that's Michael um, Yao. So I think I could probably send you the link. I'll, I'll stick in the show notes, so it's all good, yeah. Wicked, yeah. So that's, that's pretty much it, yeah. Instagram, LinkedIn, GitHub, those are probably the main main ways to find me. Of course, you can hit my website, send me an email, and I'll just be answering queries as well. A big thank you to today's guest, Mike Akakpo. You can find Mike on LinkedIn, on his website, nomadic.co.uk, with a Q, or on Instagram at Yao. As always, you'll find the show notes as well as links to everything we talked about in today's episode at robj.me slash coffee and coding. If you like the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Personally, I use Pocket Casts, so shout out to them. And if you really like the show, please do leave us a five star review. It helps others find the show just like an app. The higher the rating, the more visible it becomes. And it makes us feel good. Finally, if you'd like to follow me online, you can find me everywhere at lowcarprob or you can find me online at robj.me. And that's all from me. Thanks for listening. And I hope to catch you next week on the Coffee and Coding Podcast. <laughs>